Good morning. It's good to see you all. It's good to see you, Frida. Hope all of you are doing well. Well, we're doing well. We're doing good. We're blessed to be here. We're blessed to have the opportunity to be here. We live in interesting times, but Christ is victorious, is he not? Let's enter into prayer. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful, Lord, and thankful, Lord, to gather together freely in your house as your body, Lord, and lift you up to come together in fellowship and praise your name, to confess with our mouths that you are Lord of Lord and King of Kings. And we pray this morning that you be with us all around us, Lord God, that your presence, Lord, be felt, be experienced as it has been, Lord, all year and the years past. Lord God, we thank you for your faithfulness to your people. Great is your faithfulness. And we just pray, Lord God, that you bless and anoint our worship today. Let each one here, Lord, be touched. Let each one here, Heavenly Father, be blessed as we bless your name in song. We pray your anointing over the word today, Lord Jesus, as we learn and read your living word. In your holy name we pray, amen. Let's remember one of our greatest promises from the Lord. In John chapter 14, verse 18, No, I will not abandon you as orphans. I will come to you. Soon the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Since I live, you also will live. And when I am raised to life again, you will know that I am in, I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. I thank you, Lord God, for your Holy Spirit. I thank you, Lord God, for your presence, Lord God across the earth, Lord God. I thank you, Lord God, that you dwell in me, Lord God, in us, Lord God, because you're willing, Lord, to knock on the doors of our hearts, Lord God. And as we as we offer you entrance, Lord God, into our, our, our being, Lord God, you fill us up, Lord God, with your presence. And I pray, Lord God, that our worship will be an offering, Lord God, pleasing to you, a fragrance and aroma, Lord God, that blesses you. And Lord God, just be with us, Lord God. Fill this temple with your glory, Lord. Fill this temple with you, Lord, the presence of you, Lord. We come here, Lord God, expecting to see you, Lord, expecting to feel you, Lord. And so I just pray that blessing over us today. Please, you'll need your hymnal today. Please turn to page 177, Just As I Am, page 177.
if my burden is light, just come to him with your burdens and come to him with your cares. He will take them from you. He doesn't want you to bear them alone. Turn to page 100. He touched me. Page 100.
come to know you, Lord. Bring the lost, Lord. Bring those who, Lord, have shackles over their eyes who don't know, Lord God, that they're burdened, Lord God. And help them, Lord, and set them free, Lord. Use us, Lord. Use us, Lord. Thank you, God.
God is still on the throne. God is still in control. How many knows what Purim is? Purim is the celebration of the deliverance of the Jews from the hands of, or really the hands of Haman and the evil schemes that he had for the people of God. And we read that story last night. And uh, it looked bad. It looked over. The, the lives of the Jewish people was decreed to be ended. And the rest of the non-Jewish people were empowered by law to go and end their lives and take everything that was theirs. And that was the result of the plotting and the scheming of Haman. And his advisors and his wife. And yeah, last week, uh, Kevin actually came over and we were praying about the country and what's going on and what we see happening in the government. Um, and I, I brought that story up and I recalled that, that uh, Esther threw two banquets for the king, Ahasuerus, and Haman. And I kind of wondered why did she have two banquets, right? Why string it out? <laughs> um, but as I was reading that story last night to the kids and Audrey and, and reading the commentary, a lot of important things changed between the time of the first banquet and the second banquet just the following evening. When Haman came home after the first banquet, he declared to his um, I think maybe it was when he was invited to the first banquet. He went home and was thrilled and honored and excited that he was going to, I think it was after the first banquet, he was invited not only to the first one, but the queen herself had invited him to the second one. Only him and the king were invited. And, uh, but on, the, on his way home from the first banquet, he ran into Mordecai, and there he stood in front of him um, at the gate. And the commentary said he was so stubborn with, with, with what he knew was coming upon his people, he would not show the proper etiquette towards Haman, a more important person, to maybe lessen the pain against the Jews. But also he was so principled that he wouldn't, he wouldn't uh, bow or uh, show respect to a man he knew was so corrupt and evil. And he knew God would be delivering his people. He told Esther, you know, maybe you're here for such a time as this, but if you don't act, God will still deliver his people, but you and your household will not be saved. He was absolutely certain God was going to deliver. Something was going to be done for the injustice. It just had to be. He had faith that God was going to do what he had said he was going to do throughout the books of the Bible, that the, 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 the books that he had, the words of the prophets, he had almost all of the major prophets' books. He had um, the Psalms. He had the books written by Moses. He had all the word of God to know that God was going to deliver his people and invited Esther to step in and do a play a part, but said, even if you don't play your part, God's going to deliver his people. 
But Haman was so lifted up and so excited and so full of himself that the king and the queen were inviting him. And but something happened the night between the first banquet and the second banquet. The king could not sleep. And God kept the king up and the king went and told his, I think they called them chamberlains, um, go get the books of the Chronicles and read them to me. I, I imagine that would be a good way to be put to sleep. Um, you know, go, go get these books and start reading them. Maybe I'll just fall asleep. And they read of the man who had foiled an assassination plot against the king, Mordecai. And he said, what have we done to honor this man? And they said, nothing's been done to honor this man. And the next morning, Haman comes in. Haman had already told his people, build gallows upon which we are going to kill Mordecai for showing such disrespect to me, the one that the king and the queen want to lift up. He had already gotten that started, didn't bother to go to the king for permission. And the king, as we know in the story, said, uh, what would you suggest we do for somebody that the king wants to honor? And Haman, of course, couldn't see past himself that there would be anybody honored other than himself. And he just started listing off all the things that should be done, thinking of himself. Oh, put your best raiment on this man. Uh, put, a, put a crown on his head. Put him on one of the horses that you yourself have ridden and then walk him through the streets proclaiming the honor of this man. And the king said, go do these things, all of them. Don't leave any of these things out. Go do these things for Mordecai. And that was the beginning of the end for Haman. He went back to his wife and his wise people and they said, this is how the king wants to honor Mordecai. You are doomed. And then he went to the second bank. At the, that time, the, the king's people showed up to bring Haman to the banquet. And that banquet was his final undoing. Esther presented the case before the king. And the king immediately said for Haman to be hung. And then in the days that followed, we finished the whole thing. A lot happened after that. A lot the king reversed the earlier decree, gave Mordecai and Esther the power and the authority of him to go out and to undo all that was going to be done. Apparently, the decree that had gone out earlier was, was going to be carried out. Those people were going to kill the Jews. And then they knew who those people were, and they instead, with the, with the authority of the king and Mordecai, he decreed that they would kill those people, and they did. A lot of people were, were killed because of what they were going to do against God's people. Haman's sons, ten sons, were killed. After they were killed, they were hung. I mean, it said that they slew them, and then it said they built gallows and put them on the gallows. So there was no question where the king stood in all these things, and... and um, On the way here, I played a song for Evan called uh, Sunday's on the Way, well, for myself. And the song is an old Carmen song that says, it may look like Friday night, but Sunday's on the way. It may feel like Friday night, but Sunday's on the way. So with more 
troops in Washington, D.C. right now than there are in Afghanistan. <laughs> it may look like Friday, but I think Sunday is on the way. I trust in God's plan. And I trust in his timing. I don't know what it's going to be. I don't know how close to midnight it gets. I don't know, uh, you know, it may appear to us to be too late. As, as we said before, uh, God misses many golden opportunities to be early, but he's never late. So I trust in him fully. Amen. Never seen something like what we see now where there's 25,000 troops in Washington. When the person in the inauguration represents the will of the people, you don't need a contingent like that to defend the city, do you? And they know it. Guilt. But God is in control. God is in control. We trust in him. We can hold our heads up high and put a smile on our faces because we're glad we're not those who have done what, with the scheming and the cheating and the lying that Haman did. Be glad not to be in the bunch. Yes, be glad not to have contributed your voice to that. Be glad not to have contributed your consent and agreement to that. Yes. We trust in God to deliver this land. And there is so much more than just the United States yeah. in the balance. I mean, if you watch the events around the world, you watch what China now feels free to do to the people in Hong Kong. Yeah. I mean, immediately started rounding people up and sending them back to the mainland, putting them in jail, or worse. And the devil is raging at this time around the world. And it looks like, and it feels like Friday night, that there is a Sunday coming for those people. And there are gallows that have been built, maybe for many of us. I mean, if we're watching what's going on, they're taking careful notes, aren't they? I mean, they're not even waiting. They're, they're, they're taking careful notes and they're letting us know. We're tracking everybody, every, everything you've said, everything you've done. If you've supported the wrong people, we are taking careful notes and it will be cleansed. Words like cleansed have been used. Um, we know that it's not just people doing this. It's the satanic drive behind them. Yeah. It's the same thing that drove Haman. He built gallows for his enemy. But those gallows were not used for his enemy. Those gallows were used for him and more were built for his already dead sons. But let's pray for the nation. Yes. 25,000 troops are not enough to rescue those people from the Lord. But uh, I truly believe that when this event is done, we will look back and say it was done God's way. Yes. And it was worth it. Yes. Yes. It was worth it to do this God's way and not man's way. With that, I would like to invite prayer requests today. This being, you know, a, a chief one, we've been praying quite a bit as the year's gone on. I don't know if anyone noticed, but the governor of uh, New York came out this week and said, we better reopen businesses or businesses won't be able to be reopened. And the mayor of Chicago came out and said, you know, we need to reopen bars and restaurants now, because if we don't, people might be meeting in ways that aren't COVID compliant. 
And those are all kind of filed under the category of who didn't see this coming, right? Who didn't see that hypocrisy? I guess the winds of science have changed since the election, but in any event, um, I'd like to put our nation on the top of this list and the events in the days and weeks and months to come. I think victory is ahead. I have a message this morning that we're all familiar with, but I think God's got something to tell us. I really do. And I'm calling this where the rubber meets the road. And I don't usually say that I have a text, but today I'm going to say I have a text. And it's in the book of Job, chapter 23 and verse 10. We're going to go through the whole book of Job, so don't get too attached to chapter 23, but we're going to go really fast. 23 and 10. But he knoweth the way that I take. And when he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. Father, I just ask you today to open our eyes, open our hearts, help us to understand, Lord, the things that we can't understand in our own mind, but the Spirit can give light. And we ask it in your name. Amen. As a bit of background, Job was born 350 years after Noah died. He was Jacob's grandson. I didn't know that. And he was about 70 years old at the time that his affliction started. His wife, though famous for her lack of support of her husband, was unnamed in the scripture. There are Jewish writings outside of the Bible that name her Sitidos, uh, and I also read in some of these writings that she died in the field with the cattle at the time the cattle were killed. And that when Job was restored by God, he married another woman, another wife named Dinah. But again, I couldn't find record of that written in the scripture. Job 1 through 3 tells us pretty much all the information we have about Job's life. For instance, he was a perfect man and upright, and he feared God and he avoided evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and verse tells us that Job continually offered sacrifices for his sons because it may be that my sons have committed sin and cursed God in their hearts. So he was a very concerned father and a good husband and provider. And verse three speaks of Job as being the greatest of all men in the East. We know that Job's wealth was vast for the day. In fact, I read that only counting his livestock, his holdings were over $800,000. He had a myriad of animals, including horses, sheep, camels, oxen, and she-asses, 
which I read are the same thing as a donkey, so we're just going to call them donkeys today, and they were coveted for their milk, not only as a food source, but because the milk contained a substance called retinol that was extracted from the milk and used as skin treatments. It's said that Cleopatra regularly took baths in she-donkey milk as a beauty treatment. The horses signified his strength and his valor and his readiness for war and defense. But the oxen and the donkeys that he had were domesticated animals and used for farming and load-bearing and riding. And it's not really pertinent to the message, but I found something I thought was really interesting. You know, I've been raised here my whole life, never on a farm or ranch or anything, so I thought this was interesting. I learned that crossing a, mule, a male donkey with a mare horse, so a, a male donkey with a female horse, produces a mule. And they're very strong, much stronger than a male horse crossed with a female donkey, which is called a hitty. Never heard of that. So the mules were coveted for their strength, but they were sterile and unable to reproduce. And the she donkeys were coveted for their milk, their working ability, riding, and reproducing. So like I said, that was just a little extra. So as we continue on through the first chapter, God and Satan have a negotiation meeting. And we get into now some of the questions found in the book of Job that are really hard for us to understand. Verse 6 through 8 presents the barter between Satan and God. Verse 6 now there was a day when the sons of God, who were the fallen angels, came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan himself came also among them. And verse 7, And the Lord said unto Satan, Where'd you come from? Whence comest thou? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth, and from walking up and down in it. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Doth Job fear God for not? Oh, excuse me, I skipped verse 8. And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in all the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil, or avoids evil? And Satan answered the Lord and said, Doth Job fear God for nothing? Hast thou not made a hedge about him and about his house and about all that he hath on every side? Hast thou not blessed the work of his hands and the substance is increased in his lands? But put forth thy hand now and touch all that he hath and he will curse thee to thy face. And God's response, very powerful and yet very confusing to us. Verse 12, And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, all that he hath is in thy power. Only upon himself put not forth your hand, 
So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord. Now the contrasts here are really striking. We read God is bragging and lifting up, bragging on Job, his servant, and lifting him up greater than anyone in the earth, he says, and asks Satan, have you considered my servant righteous, pure, undefiled, faithful? And then by contrast, we see Satan coming to God's throne in bold arrogance, working his evil plan and blatantly saying so. <clears throat> he wanted God's jewel, one of God's prized possessions on earth to fall and to fail God. And thus began the devastation to Job. One by one, he lost everything he had, his animals, his homes, his possessions, and of course, his children. All of them gone in a day. Verse 20 through 22, then arose Job, and he rent his mantle, and he shaved his head, and he fell down on the ground and worshiped. And he said, naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all of this, Job sinned not nor charged God foolishly. If the story was to have ended here, it would have been a stunning example of faith and steadfast trust in God. But we know it didn't end here because Satan returned. He wasn't satisfied with just, just destroying the life of Job. He wanted God's glory. So the same negotiation took place again, and God said, Have you considered my servant Job? A second time, God lifts him up before Satan and says, Have you considered him? And Satan said in chapter 2, verse 4, Skin for skin, yeah, all that a man has he will give for his own life. And God said, Don't touch his life. And so began the horrible, agonizing, physical torment of Job. And on top of the emotional loss of his fortune and his children, now he's severely attacked in his body, and it drives him to a deep, dark depression. First, the betrayal of his wife, to whom Job had been a faithful husband and provider and father of their children, she plays the victim, and she joins with Satan. And the Amplified Bible says this of her only words recorded in Scripture, verse 9 of chapter 2. Then his wife said unto him, Do you still cling to your integrity and your faith and trust in God without blaming him? Curse God and die. In her own grief and her confusion and her pain, she became selfish and inwardly focused. Maybe she thought Job would die too and leave her completely alone. In chapter 16, Job's friends begin their psychotherapy sessions on him. 
His friend Elihu tells him that his self-righteousness is the problem. Don't say that you're innocent of anything. That his reaction, that Job's reaction and his constant whining about his plight, how undeserved it is, and that God is punishing for it. Just accept it and say it. His other three friends were no better. They offered accusations, unwanted comparisons, and God's justification for Job's plight. You deserved it. Mass confusion reigned, vainly trying to use man's limited, finite mind and reasoning power to understand a God thing. Leaving Job to conclude in chapter 16 and verse 1, and then Job said, I've heard so many things. Miserable comforters are you all. We move to chapter 23, the prayer of Job. In chapter 23, Job begins to pour out his heart to God in earnest bearing his soul, his defense of his innocence, of sin, the pain, the confusion, the lack of his understanding, the illogic, if that's a word, the absurdity of it all. But he found no answers. Nothing changed. In chapter 38, now don't worry, there's only 42 chapters, so we're getting towards the end. Praise the Lord. The Bible says that the word of the Lord came. 38.1 And then the word of the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. Who is this darkness? Who is this that darkens counsel by the words without knowledge? In other words, who's speaking these stupid words before me that don't understand what's going on. He's speaking this to Job, his self or his righteous, pure servant. Gird up thy loins, Job, like a man, for I will demand of thee and you are going to answer me. And there God began a 184 question interrogation and teaching of Job. God asked Job, who do you think you are? <laughs> Did you set the stars in place? Did you tell the ocean you can come this far and no further? Did you do this? Did you do that? No. But more, who do you think I am? That was the question God was trying to get through to Job. And in, in chapter 40 and verse 3, the Bible says that Job clapped his hand over his mouth and he said, Lord, I will be quiet. And from there, the Lord continued proving his sovereignty to Job, that he is God and that Job is not. God begins to describe his mighty power over behemoth, a land creature, 
and Leviathan, a sea creature. And God said to Job, will you play with him as a bird? Well, I do. He's a king over all of the children of pride. Yet these are nothing for me. And everything under the heaven is mine. I want to tell you this morning, God's hand is on the tail of Leviathan. And he holds him at bay. He's swinging him around like a toy. Not my words. This is what the Bible tells us. And Job's response to God in verse four, in chapter 42 and verse 1. Yes, Lord, I know that you can do everything. I just didn't understand. Things were too wonderful for me to know, which I knew not. And verse 6. And Job repented before God. I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear before, but now mine eye hath seen thee. God opened up the spiritual eye, the spiritual seeing of Job, so that he could comprehend who he's dealing with here. These things make no difference. God said, don't worry about these things. I have them under my control. You keep your eyes on me. And Job repented before God. And I have heard thee by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye seeth, where I abhor myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. And then the Lord deals with the friends and pronounces his wrath upon them because they had said wrong things and had failed to repent as Job had. And as you know, he made it the friends offer up sacrifices before Job so that Job could pray for his friends. And now the culmination of it all. You know, I think people think that the power of this, of this story lies in the fact that Job prayed for his friends. I don't. I think the power lies in the fact that God opened the spiritual eyes of Job to see who he was, and it caused Job to have a repentant heart. I think that's the story of Job. In chapter 42, in verse 19, and the Lord turned the captivity of Job when he prayed for his friends. Also, the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. So the latter end of Job was greater than his beginning. We must see him. The test seemed so unfair, so unnecessary, such a disruption to their lives and so harsh. Sometimes life certainly feels that way for us too. We cannot understand with our mortal thinking and we don't want to accept that. But again, we must see him. We can't come close to understanding what possible good could come from our own loss or pain. 
If it hurts us, then it must not be of God, right? Or could it be that God had a hidden agenda, one that might take us through the fire, but build our character as he walks through it with us? One that might cause us to say, I knew of you, but now I know you. James 5 and 11 says, Behold, we count them happy which endure. You've heard, you've heard of the patience of Job, and I have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. Life does seem unfair, but happy are they which endure. Our trust has to remain in God no matter what we see with our natural eye, no matter what we don't understand, no matter what pain is caused to us. Don't let go of the one who holds the tail of Leviathan because he's full of pity and mercy upon his children. And finally, in the book of Revelation, chapter 12 and verse 11, it says, and they came, they overcame the accuser, that devil, the wicked one, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they loved not their lives unto the death. Have I given up on God working a miracle for America right now? Oh, no. Far from it. But let us also realize that there is a purpose in the trying of our faith because it works patience, just as it did for Job. And remember this verse, 2310, but he knoweth the way that I take. And when he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. It's about making us strong. It's about showing us who our God is. It's about us having faith that doesn't waver to the death. This is what the Bible tells us. Let's just stand and thank him this morning. I wrote this prayer, but I want to read it word for word because I think it's important. Oh God, thank you for your pity and your mercy on us while we're in this fiery trial. For it's too much for us to understand and figure out on our own. It's absurd. It's unfair. It's a terrible interruption in our lives. But Lord, like Job, we will bear our souls in repentance for our sin. We shall not be haughty and prideful, but we shall be quiet and at peace, and we will wait for your voice. 
for we know that even Behemoth and Leviathan are your toys. They are nothing for you, and as such, we need not fear. Strengthen our resolve, Lord, to endure and build our character for your approval that once we've been tried, we shall come forth as gold, for we know it's your purpose. We love you, Jesus. And we ask you to bring our friends and our families together as you did with Job after you restored him for the celebration of what you've done in restoring the loss. For you restore bigger and better than anything that we could have achieved on our own. In Jesus' name, we pray these words. Amen and amen. We do bear our souls in repentance, Father, and we just say, take away the dross. Burn it out, Lord, as we walk this way with your hand in ours, that we may come forth shining bright, something that you can be proud of, O oh God, and say, this is my bride. In Jesus' name, amen.